0: If or haven't been with us over the past few weeks, we are in a series called the Apostles Creed and we are doing what few Southern Baptist churches do. We're actually reciting the Apostles Creed together and we're taking bits and pieces of that creed and learning from the creed biblical theology about who God is. And so last week, Pastor James talked to us in his message about Jesus, uh, God's only son, And today we'll be looking at a specific part of the creed, but I've entitled today's message More Than Just a Man. More Than Just a Man. And I thought about how could I illustrate the fact that Jesus is more than just a man. And I thought about the best superhero of all time, and that's Superman. All right. So, I'm gonna, there's a few pictures I want you to see about Superman, and and uh, it was really fun this last week, going on YouTube and reminding myself, finding pictures, remembering that first Superman movie that came out when I was one years of age, all right? So my childhood was watching Superman, all right? And, and I asked um, folks in the early service, and, and one of our deacons came up and told me the name of Superman's father. He knew it, so I said, if I had a lot of money, I'd hand the money out to you if you know his name. But the, the movie movie begins shortly in this scene and there's a little baby Superman and his planet's about to explode and his mother and father make sure that he is sent away for his own safety and there's a real you know it's amazing this wouldn't happen in, in 2018 but in 1978 there's a powerful moment so go go find Superman 1 watch it on YouTube where the father speaks toward his son and it's very much like the father in heaven speaking toward Jesus it's really neat so I know exactly what they were going for in that opening scene. So they send Jesus, send send Superman, all right? The analogy's not that good, all right? Um, Anyway, send Superman to the earth, all right? So, And of course, they are real technologically savvy on his home planet, and they know that when when, when he goes to the earth, he's going to have these superpowers, all right? So um, he is sent to the earth, found by two, Jonathan and Martha Kent. They adopt him. They were unable to have children. And they learned early on after having their young son that they named Clark, that he is no ordinary boy. I mean, he, he picks the truck up, and it's pretty amazing who this little guy is. And so they name him Clark. And you learn from the very beginning of his life on earth, he was more than just a man. And so he has these superpowers. That comes from him being on the earth, in the Earth's atmosphere. He has superhuman strength, superhuman ability to, to see through things. He can blow wind out of his mouth and move stuff around and free stuff, and lasers come out of his eyes. He's just this incredible superman, right? And so we have lots of conversations in our household. I've got a five-year-old, and, and, and we love superheroes, and we always go back and forth, Who is the greatest of the superheroes? And I always come back to, and I'm a huge Spider-Man guy, but I have to always come back to Superman. I mean, come on. It's Superman. He can fly. He has superhuman strength. He is just the greatest of all the heroes. And he, his job was to... Um, well, but, but, so he, he goes and he's got this alter ego and it's Clark Kent and there he is. And so um, he's this news reporter, but, but when he finds out there's trouble happening, what happens? Superman goes into his outfit to save the day. He's always defeating the bad guys and he's and protecting the innocent um, I, we got a slide of him on the train. Uh, yeah, that's the, t- some of the bad guys that he always has to deal with. But I love the Yeah, that's a great scene where the train's coming and he picks the track up and the train goes on and just wonderful memories from my childhood. So bear with me as I share these memories with you, um, church. But uh, I mean, he, he, he was and will always be the ultimate superhero. But he's just part of a comic book series. He's just part of movies he's not real. This morning we're going to look at someone who was and is real. And his name is Jesus and he is more than just a man. More than just a man. So like we do each week I want to invite you if you're able to stand and I want us to recite together the apostles creed. You'll find it in your Bulletin insert, but also on the screens behind me. This is simply a confession of faith the church has used for thousands of years. So say it with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. And I've said this multiple times, but I know we have some visitors here today, um, The little c there, Catholic, that's in in Latin, it means universal. It's just the universal church, all right? So last week, Pastor James spoke about, out of the book of Hebrews, about Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Today, we examine this phrase in the Creed, which is describing Jesus, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So if you have your Bibles, get ready to move your hands a lot. We're going to be in multiple passages this morning. We'll start in the book of Matthew chapter 1. I'm really excited about this series. I've enjoyed it so much personally. Um, You know, everyone, whether you realize it or not, we're all theologians. We're all called to know God and understand who God is as he has revealed himself to us through his word. So it's a joy to do theology with you in this series. But in Matthew chapter 1, after the genealogy there listed in that book, Matthew shifts gears in verse 18. He says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Before they came together. Matthew uh, 1.20 is the last half of that verse. Before we read that, you need to know that we're told about Joseph... In verse 19, how he plans to divorce her quietly. Because God has not spoken to him or revealed to him uh, this miracle that Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit's power. I mean, that just doesn't happen. He he knows that she's pregnant. He can only conceive of it one way. And he is planning to divorce her. Yet God, in his mercy, comes to him in verse 20. God sends an angel. The angel says this, verse 20. Last half, Joseph, son of David, that means he's a descendant of King David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now flip to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Luke has his introduction. He talks about a guy with one of the coolest names in the Bible, Theophilus. And then he talks about how John the Baptist's birth was foretold. And then he goes to the birth of Jesus being foretold. Well, look at verse 30. He He gives us some specific information about what month the angel comes. He gives us the angel's name. His name is Gabriel. And this is what he says to Mary. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And the angel goes on to say that he'll be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. But then when he stops, Mary does what any normal person would do in her situation. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Since I am a virgin, and the angel answered her, this is important, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. The Bible could not be any more clear. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit while she was a virgin. That is what the Bible teaches. There are some who say that's impossible to happen. They don't believe every word of the Bible, but the Bible clearly teaches this truth. Now, I want us to think for a moment about how God the Father could have gone about sending His Son Into the world. God could have sent Jesus to the earth 30 years of age, shows up in Galilee, there north of Jerusalem, does miracles, does ministry. He could have sent Jesus to the world as an adult, but there would have been questions about who is this man, where is he from? It's just not the way that God chose to do it. God could have also chosen to allow Joseph and Mary to go past that betrothal, that engagement phase, to be fully married, consummate the marriage, then take that seed of Joseph and that seed of Mary and and to this overshadow that union and there is baby Jesus. But God didn't choose that way either. Think about it. If he did do it that way, <laughs> there'd be questions about how can this, that's, that's just Mary and Joseph's son. How is he God, the son? How? How is he divine? So God, in his incredible wisdom and creativity, did this in such a way that there would be one person born who would have a divine nature and a human nature, fully God, fully man, and one person. It's incredible, God's design. It makes sense why God would do it the way he did. So three quick reasons why it's significant, the design and purpose and plan of the virgin birth. First, both Joseph and Mary were told what name to give to their son. It was Jesus. Jesus means God saves. And the Savior is going to enter the world only by God's supernatural grace and power. Mary couldn't make this happen. Yes, she does house the Son of God in her womb, but she couldn't make this happen without God the Holy Spirit moving in her life. In the same way, we are saved by God's supernatural and grace and power found in Jesus. We have to respond to that grace through faith, through trusting in Jesus. There is nothing you can do or I can do to be saved apart from the grace of God. So the very incarnation of Jesus, the very way that he was conceived and born speaks of how it's God's gracious gift to us of salvation. Secondly, the conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary's womb helps explain how the person of Jesus can be both fully God and fully human. I've already mentioned that. That's the real theological truth behind it. Fully God, fully human. Number three, the conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary's womb means that Jesus doesn't inherit a human sin nature like us. Now, the Bible teaches that we are sinners both by our choices and inherently in our nature that we are sinful. These three children that I just baptized, I always have conversations with them about the gospel. And I always will say to them and their parents when we're together, you don't have to teach your child how to lie. It's just inherently part of the nature of human beings to be self-centered and to lie and to steal and to be about yourself and to be rebellious. It's who we are. It's our nature inherently sinful. And the Bible tells us this. In the book of Romans chapter five, Paul talks about how one man's sin leads to the sinfulness of the human race. He says, just as sin came into the world through one man, that one man's Adam, the first man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. But what happens if a man doesn't sin? There's only one, it's Jesus. But we still need to think about this. Just because the Bible refers to Adam as the head and as as the one who, you look at genealogy, it goes through the father to the son, yet, sorry ladies, you're sinful too. I mean, we're all sinners, all right? So how did Mary's sin nature not get imputed or placed upon this baby in her womb? Now, Roman Catholic friends would would say, oh, it's it's because of the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception, when Roman Catholics use that phrase, is not talking about the conception of Jesus in Mary's womb. When they say Immaculate Conception, they're speaking about when Mary was conceived in her mother's womb years before. And that somehow by God's grace that he protected her and she did not receive a sin nature like we have. And they go beyond that. They also teach that Mary perpetually did not sin. And even will go on and say that she perpetually remained a virgin. And the problem with this is that the Bible doesn't teach this at all. It doesn't. We find a much better solution in Luke 1, 35. Look back there. And the angel answered. I mean, she asked, how can this be? What does the angel say? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, because of that, because of him coming upon you and overshadowing you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. That means set apart. Sanctified. A saint. The child will be called Holy, the Son of God. So rather than trying to think through Mary's conception in her mother's womb, things we know nothing about, all we know is that here in Scripture, the Holy Spirit does a miracle protecting Jesus from Mary's own sinfulness. The Holy Spirit is why Jesus is called Holy, the Son of God. The only reason is because of the Holy Spirit. So here's the big idea this morning with this message. Because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, he is more than just a man. Jesus is the God-man. He's the God-man. So we're talking this morning, using theological terms, of the doctrine of the incarnation, which is the act of God the Son taking to himself human nature. We see this in the Bible. John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, John writes, And the Word, the Word there is speaking of Jesus. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So why did Jesus Christ become a man? Why did he take on human flesh to really multiple benefits and reasons? Why? I'll just focus on one with this verse, 1 Timothy 2.5. I think this is the most important reason why God the Son became a man. Paul says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Isn't it interesting that Paul sees the, the significance of saying he is the man, Christ Jesus? Now, he could say... The God, Christ Jesus. And that's true. Jesus Christ is God the Son. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is man. Is it confusing? A little bit, sure. But it's both true. But he says there's a mediator between God, who Jesus already is, and mankind, which is who we are, and that mediator is Jesus, the God-man. Significant that he says the man, Christ Jesus. Now, three truths Thinking about the God-man, Jesus Christ, that we can take home and apply to our lives first. Jesus, number one, is our complete and perfect Savior at all times. Turn to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews for our next three passages. Jesus is our complete, perfect Savior at all times. So you go to Hebrews 7. You get to verse 23. And if you read the book of Hebrews, it's a really great book in that it, it looks at the Old Testament law, the sacrifices, the priesthood. And it compares that to Jesus, how he is far superior than all of those old covenant customs. You get to verse 23, the writer says, The former priests were many in number. I mean, there's only one Jesus, but there's a lot of priests throughout human history. Lots. He says they were former, in, many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. It would be like having a president of a nation, and they're president until they die. And that's what kicks them out of office, their own death. I mean, that's what happened in their Priesthood. But, verse 24, he, Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently. It's a lifetime appointment to use political language, right? Um, Because he continues forever. He goes beyond those lifetime appointments because they die too. But Jesus is eternal. Look at verse 25. Consequently, because of that, Jesus is able to save, I love this word, to the uttermost. We need to use that word more in English. He saves to the uttermost. It means complete, perfect, full saving. Those who, who does he save? Those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for There is nothing lacking in Jesus. The Old Testament priests, they all died. Their ministries ended. Jesus at all times is forever our faithful high priest. He continues forever because Jesus is eternal. Death came to him. He gave his life. It didn't stop his saving ministry. He swallowed up death in victory through his resurrection at all times. Jesus is Savior. So whatever time you find yourself in, college, job transition, retirement, medical struggle, whatever times you find yourself in, Jesus is a perfectly sufficient, complete Savior for you, wherever you are. Even if you're like, I I don't even know if this is true, this stuff about the virgin birth, Kate. It sounds uh, really ridiculous to me. How can that happen? If that's where you are, you need to know that Jesus is a perfect Savior for you. No matter where you are. If you're skeptic, if you're doubting, if you're on top of the world spiritually, if you're failing in your walk with Christ, Jesus is a complete Savior for you. Nothing lacking in him. Oh, there's a lot of lacking in us and me that we're saved through Jesus. Perfect, complete Savior. That should encourage your heart this morning. Number two, this is where I get sneaky. This is where I use one point to, to bring up four sermon points, all right? So Jesus is able to destroy, deliver, make propitiation and help, all right? Yeah, four more points. Ha ha. Gotcha. All right, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2. Um, they're all from the text, all right? So you look at chapter 2, he talks about the writer of the angels and how the Bible says that as humans were made a little lower than the angels and how Jesus became a man, how he was willingly made himself, he humbled himself to be a little lower than the angels. But then he talks about how Jesus will declare our names among the congregation in heaven and, and that we're his brothers and sisters, how we are we're part of his family. It's an amazing section in the Bible. But look at verse 14. Since therefore the children, that's us, Share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That is, Jesus shared in our flesh and blood. We're thinking about incarnation, what that means for us theologically and practically. Jesus partook in this incarnation, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Those who are being tempted. Now a lot of folks folks think Paul wrote Hebrews because of the logical way that he writes. I don't think Paul wrote it. It's just my opinion. I always say the writer. So the writer here tells us that Jesus is able to destroy. Destroy what? Destroy our enemy. Destroy the devil as romans 16:28 tells us that the god of peace will soon crush satan under our feet and that's because jesus defeated the devil through his cross he has destroyed the devil forever he's also able as a complete savior to deliver specifically from what in this passage deliver us from the fear of death and I would add to that, any kind of thing that lifelong slavery, it says, if you're held captive, and we all are, by the way, held captive by something, that, that you go back to, it holds you down, it keeps you in shackles. Listen, there's freedom today in Jesus Christ. He, he sets captives free. He delivers us. He makes propitiation. What does that mean? It simply means that Jesus bears the wrath of God for our sin. The wrath that we deserve, God and his justice, should judge us and punish us for all eternity. Yet Jesus took that sin upon himself. The high priest was... was Called by God to make atonement for the people of Israel. Just a normal priest would take the animals from the people and sacrifice the animals, and that blood would cover their sins. Yet Jesus went beyond just being that priest who took animals, he became that sacrificial lamb on the cross for us. The high priest became the slaughtered lamb to make propitiations, to save us from our sins. And this is the greatest news that I've talked about this morning, that we can be forgiven of all our sin. I get an amen. I mean, that is good news for me, at least, and for all of us here today, if you're honest, that Jesus covers our sins through his sacrificial work on the cross and resurrection. And Jesus is our help. I love these words in verse 17. He's merciful. He's faithful. He suffers as we suffer. When he is tempted, that he might be able to help those of us who are tempted. The Bible says that all of us are tempted. And we need someone to help us. And Jesus is so great. He helps us. You'll see this even more. Look at Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4. Let's skip past that. Genesis 3, 15 is a great verse in your insert that says how, how Jesus uh, is going to crush the enemy. Look at Hebrews 4. This is great. This is after that great verse about the word of God being sharper than a two-edged sword. Then Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Don't miss that. So this high priest has, has ascended. He's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But one who in every respect, listen, every respect he has been tempted, the Bible says, as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He is our deliverer, the destroyer of evil, the destroyer of Satan. He makes propitiation. He bears God's wrath for us that we deserve. He helps us and he He makes a way, church. Those verses say that he makes a way for us, for God to renew what he intended in creation when God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. It's always been about God longing to have a people for himself, that he might walk among them and be among his people. God has made a way through Jesus. He's the trailblazer. He's entered into the heavens. He's the son of God. He has made a way for us to boldly approach the throne of grace. Listen. If you are a born again Christian, you approach the throne of grace not with arrogance, but with boldness. Because the Bible says we should and we can boldly approach the throne. We can receive grace and mercy and help in our time of need. Whatever your time of need is, when it will come, when it has been, Jesus offers help through his high priestly work. He's awesome. Number three, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and worthy of total surrender. Two passages and we're done. Philippians 2, Revelation 19. I've said a lot this morning. I'm just going to let God's word do the work. Just notice in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, how, how the language of these verses, how it talks about how Jesus became a man and, and think about the incarnation and what that means and, and, and see what our response should be in this passage. It's very, very evident. Look at verse 5. Paul says in Philippians 2: Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Some translations have this attitude. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to invite our worship team to come and prepare for our last song. Jesus laid aside every divine privilege that were rightly His. And He humbled Himself and became so obedient that He was willing to even die. According to His Father's will. And the result of that is that every knee should bow and every tongue confess. It is the fact that God exalted His Son's humble obedience on the cross. Means that we should confess. That Jesus is Lord. In other words, Jesus is worthy of our total surrender. We're talking a lot as a staff about what's the next step. It's our job to help you as, as a church know what next steps can you take. I'll, I'll give you your next step. And it'll be your next step tomorrow. And my next step tomorrow. And then my next step on, on Tuesday. And yours on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday. And that's total surrender to Jesus. Total Every part of your life, every part of my life, absolute, total surrender. If that were to take place in this church, oh my stars, what would happen? Revival. Total surrender to Jesus. and his grace, he is offering it to us now. Yet you go to Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. This is not the Jesus holding the little lamb on his shoulders. No, it's not Jesus with little, little kids, you know, on his knee and blessing them. This is another vision of Jesus. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. You want to know Jesus. Get to know his word. That's his name, the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Say that name with me. King of kings and Lord of lords. Say, Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. Say it with me. Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's add that to the Apostles' Creed. Say it with me. Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. Would you stand with me? Our our team is going to lead us in worship now. This is your opportunity to respond, church. To this glorious Jesus who destroys death, the devil who delivers us, who covers our sin, who is a faithful Savior at all times for you, complete in every way, who helps us, who makes a way for us to enter into God's presence with boldness and confidence to receive His grace. He is King of kings, Lord of lords, every knee should bow. I pray that we surrender completely to Jesus right now. As we sing, you need to make a decision for Christ. You come, I'll be here to receive any decision you have. Let's just worship Him together and surrender to Him.